собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who make monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is titled Structurally Adjusting Socialism, the first in the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies spring series, Socialism, Past, Present, and Future. In this series, my guests and I will explore the experience of really existing socialism, grassroots socialist and communist movements, socialist-inspired economic development and state-building, and visions of a socialist future from a global perspective. Socialism is often discussed as a singular proper noun, devoid of ideological, regional, political, or economic difference. Several types of socialism were operative in the 20th century, from Soviet state socialism to Yugoslav worker self-management. What were some of the transnational movements of socialist experimentation and how, in the latter decades of the 20th century, intersected with, offer alternatives, and even shaped neoliberalism. To answer this question, I turn to Johanna Bachmann to discuss her work on second and third world perspectives on globalization, neoliberalism, and socialism. Johanna Bachmann is an associate professor in cultural studies at George Mason University, where she researches comparative and historical methods, that move beyond studies of nation-states to explorations of transnational trends such as neoliberalisms, socialisms, and the non-aligned movement. She's the author of Markets in the Name of Socialism, The Left-Wing Origins of Neoliberalism, published by Stanford University Press. Here's Johanna Bachman. I want to start our discussion by having you tell us some, a bit about yourself. Um, in particular, you open your book, uh, Markets in the Name of Socialism, with, in fall 1988, I arrived in Hungary as an exchange student. I fell into a situation that I did not understand, but that would send my life in a new direction. So what, what was this situation, and, and how did it send your, where did it send your life? Yeah, so... Yeah, so I, I end up, I, I was an undergraduate at UCLA and I um, went to an exchange program to Budapest and I uh, studied at Karl Marx University. And I arrived there um, with pr- not very much knowledge about what I was going to experience at all. And um, my mother cried at the airport because I was going behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, and I wasn't a, really thinking about that very much, but, um, but I arrived in Budapest and you know, this was what would be called the transition, right? This is like we were arriving into this time that some people call the transition, some people call the transformation. Um, and 
it was, uh, we were uh, at the university, we were studying with a group of professors who were not professors at the university. They were supposedly dissidents, as we were told. And so uh, they were teaching us classes about all sorts of things like American literature, um, anthropology, um, and uh, economics and different things. We learned Hungarian and um, we experienced this amazing transformation in this place in Budapest where we were at the beginning we were seeing these uh, protests in the streets that were very violent. Uh, the police would race into protests with motorcycles and, and try to run people over. And then we, by, the, by about six months later, there were enormous protests uh, with thousands and thousands and thousands of people lining the streets. And so we saw these things and we were, it was really unclear to us exactly what was going on. Our professors would try to help us understand they were, they were also negotiating behind the scenes on what was going to, you know, about the new government that would come in later. They would became members of the new government. Um, but so we were seeing these things, but we were also seeing things in Budapest that seemed not very, a socialist world didn't seem that strange to us also. Um, we were seeing things like there were punk clubs and cafes and, you know, every, we would go and, uh, I go to these big, huge parties at the Karl Marx University, these huge parties that would fill the thousands of people would come and dance and these strange dances. They would do these kind of East German uh, dances. Um, uh, it was really strange to me at the time. Um, so we saw all these things and it was, you know, of course I was so young. It was just everything was new. But what it did, of course, is it made me immensely interested in this part of the world. And, that, and that's where it sent my life into, into this world of um, first Hungarian studies and then thinking about Yugoslav studies, but also thinking about places that are not technically, so, weren't technically socialist, but thinking about their socialist worlds. I was, did work in Italy and, um, and that, and then also the United States and thinking about the socialist worlds of the United States. So this really sent, um, set my life into a different trajectory. So how did how did you go from there to writing your first book on the left wing origins of neoliberalism, which I remember when I saw the book was coming out years ago, I was like, you know, just kind of twist my head around because we don't usually think of the neoliberalism having any left wing origins. Yeah. So so I mean, what the time I was in Budapest, I what um, you know, many of the people around us, especially the economists, sounded very right wing to me coming out of the American context. They were speaking about wanting the free market and uh, and wanting to get rid of this kind of centralized socialism. And, and so I could only I had I would, could could only interpret this as hyper laissez faire kind of economic thought and. Um, but I was trying to figure out exactly what they were talking about. So I wrote my dissertation on Hungarian economic thought from the 1945 to 1989. And that um, I wrote that dissertation and um, I realized that I was actually at the end, I felt I was wrong. Um, it was incorrect because <laughs> I, I saw at that time a lot of um, influence of the United States. I was thinking that they had been somehow converted to American thought. And then I started talking with people more in depthly and from different countries, different economists, and I realized that in fact, economists 
all throughout the region and in the United States were actually very interested in the same kind of economics, that they shared this economic thought, neoclassical economics, and that neoclassical economics at its very core is interested in socialism. It is not, capitalism is actually almost irrelevant to neoclassical economics, which was a revelation to me to think about. So I, I was talking with these economists and it became clear that neoclassical economics was a worldwide discussion about socialism and a variety of socialisms. And so that was um, that caused this book to be written because I, I really had to rethink everything I was originally had put down on paper. <laughs> well, I'm going to get you to go into some of that in a bit. But first, I want to address <clears throat> the term that lots of people use. Some people don't even think it exists. Uh, it has multiple meanings, and that is, of course, neoliberalism. So what is neoliberalism? <laughs> what is your yeah, definition, I okay. should say? Yeah, because it's only just, I mean, we can only talk about our own definitions because there's so many ways to define it. But we can think about neoliberalism as the idea of free market policies. So uh, free market policies that are critical of the role of government. So government and neoliberalism is always perceived as um, undermining or destroying the economy and that the economy can only thrive with a reduction in government intervention. Um, but the uh, neoliberalism is also, uh, when we take its reality, neoliberalism always requires a very strong state. The state has to be strong in order to force through what are called free market policies. For example, when uh, prices um, are raised because of uh, the World Bank demands the, rise, uh, the end of price controls, there are riots and the state puts them down. This is not, a, the state is deeply involved with the implementation of neoliberal policies. So the state is actually very important. And also the other thing about neoliberalism that uh, people don't often think about is the centrality of corporate power. It is the, it is the demand that instead of the government making decisions about the public good, corporations should make decisions about the public good. So I think that's the key component actually to neoliberalism in its essence. So this brings us to, you know, your work focuses on this unlikely relationship between essentially, you know, three economic theories. One is, you've mentioned it, neoclassical economics, socialism and neoliberalism. And you look at these as not as completely distinct thought. Um, so how are these related? Yeah, so um, well, when we talk about neoclassical economics, we often identify neoclassical economics as related to such as people as Milton Friedman or Friedrich von Hayek. Um, but uh, we often, in, unfortunately, confuse um, neoclassical economics and neoliberalism. These are actually two very different things. Uh, so, for example, Milton Friedman truly is a neoclassical econ economist. He likes quantitative analysis. He is very interested in um, thinking about um, actually socialist models in his work. It's very strange, to, but it's true. He's not a socialist. In his policymaking, he advocates neoliberal policies. Friedrich von Hayek, another economist, is um, also neoliberal in his uh, policy, uh, what he advocates. 
But he is in no way a neoclassical economist. He does not like quantitative analyses. He doesn't use models at all. He's very much a philosopher and kind of a political theorist of sorts. So um, when we talk about neoclassical economics, we often confuse it with neoliberalism. And I wanted, I've been trying to make a distinction that neoclassical economics is a kind of the practice of academic economists. Neoliberalism is a policy statement. It's a series of policy statements. So it's a different from neoclassical economics. And, um, and they are, uh, and so neoclassical economics is related to socialism. Yeah, so yeah, the thing is, is that I'm not making the argument that socialism was neoliberal. Right. I'm making the argument that there were discussions all throughout Eastern Europe about things that, uh, such as the free market or having a market in socialism that sound very neoliberal and that these discussions get misinterpreted uh, maybe intentionally or maybe unintentionally misinterpreted as neoliberal activities or neoliberal discussions. But in fact, these discussions were very deeply socialist discussions. They were discussions about what a role, the role and the actual necessary role of a market in socialism. This essential aspect of the market in socialism was brought up mo most uh, one of the earliest discussions of this is by Karl Polanyi. Karl Polanyi says that every economic system requires a market. The thing that people get confused about about markets is, is that they often confuse markets with corporate power. That in fact markets are different than corporations. And the thing about that makes neoliberalism different is it has the powerful corporations or powerful economic actors that take away power from other people. And that, um, and so we have to see that um, under socialism, uh, this was not necessarily the case. Um, it, you also, you pointed out too in, in um, uh, markets in the name of socialism that one of the problems we have is that we tend to look at these, the role of the state and the role of markets in terms of binaries. Yeah. And that if it's markets, it's, you know, capitalism or neoliberalism. If it's the state, then it's, you know, socialism. Yeah. And and you're trying to find you're trying you're looking at, well, that doesn't necessarily define what these are. As you said, you you have this free it seems that you organize them more on questions of power. Yes, yes. So yeah, so the because both economic, uh, both capitalism and socialism both have the state and can have markets. It depends on the kind of socialism you're uh, advocating. So, um, so this is not the key component, the key decisive factor. The decisive factor, and this is really among economists that I'm talking about, is, is that it's the, whether you believe in hierarchical power relations or if you believe in horizontal power relations. So if you believe that the planner should decide everything or the, or the leader of the country should decide everything, that is a very different socialism than a socialism that is about workers' power, um, that it, where the workers are in control and decision-making and they in fact may in fact own the means of production. That is a very different socialism and that those differences are much more significant than the relationship, the binary between state and market. Mm -hmm. So how would you define socialism then, just to be clear, since we've talked about neoliberalism? So I would say um, that, so, so this is coming from the study of economists, so it's a very different thing, but um, is 
the idea of the social ownership of the means of production is key and the social control of the means of production and the redistribution of profits or any money that's made has to be redistributed in some way. So those would be the key components. So when we think you know, about the history of neoliberalism, another concept that gets related to it is globalization. And we, we, we tend to think of globalization and capitalism in whatever form it's in as, you know, basically one and the same or con intimately connected. But some of your recent work, actually, you're challenging this by positing that there was an effort to create a socialist globalization in the 1960s and 70s. So, so what is socialist globalization? <laughs> I, w I found this, I had no idea about this, so it was really striking. Yeah, so when we talk about globalization, we're often talking about global capitalism at this current juncture where we are right now, this kind of experience of global capitalism. Um, and so I, I remember back in the 1990s that we started using the word um, globalization um, because we couldn't really talk about capitalism. It was, it was a, a word you couldn't really talk about um, because it was seen as too political, too too difficult to talk about. I know it sounds weird because, but it was, I think because at that time, capitalism was so um, triumphant that to speak about it in any other way was almost impossible. So we used the word globalization instead. And so that was, that is sort of been continuing in some way when we talk about globalization, we mean those things. Um, but. If we really talk with people, like for example, when I talk to my students, they don't think about that at all right now. They think about globalization is about the spread of ideas and people interacting and people changing the world through global interactions. So there's another world of globalization that is not captured by that, by that term. Um, but I came to the idea about socialist globalization um, because I was doing research in the UN archives and the UN um, Conference on Trade and Development. The, which is called UNCTAD. And UNCTAD began in 1964 as an organization of the non-aligned movement to try to create a new international economic order. And this new international economic order would allow for countries to work with each other rather and to break off ties with the former colonial powers and to break off ties and be non-aligned truly from the United States and from possibly from the Soviet Union as well. And so UNCTAD was a place where they could think about having trade relations in fundamentally new ways and production relations in new ways. And so these relations that they were putting forward, I was reading these files and I was like, I kept on going, what are they saying? They're talking about free trade and they're talking about let's have markets and let's do these things, but they want to have it on a fundamentally different level fundamentally different economic world. And I realized that, first of all, that these relationships that they were going to create were re relationships that were no longer connecting them to the, to the United States or to Europe, that they were going to sever those ties and create connections with all the non-aligned countries of the world. They were going to connect each other in a way that globalization, as we understand it as capitalism, this globalization would be truly global, that they would really connect with the rest of the world. So these were just beginning ideas, but they, for example, in, as I remember, it was India, Egypt, and Yugoslavia had a trade, uh, um, a set up for a formalized trade relationship 
this was a trade relationship that was the beginning of trying to trade with faraway places, but also trying to trade with the countries nearest to you. And to have this kind of trading that would interlock every single country with each other. So this was um, really fundamentally different than anything the United States was doing. And the United States blocked this activity at every moment, voted against it at every moment, uh, because the United States wanted to have relationships directly through it rather than through these other countries. The, this movement of the non-aligned countries, of, of you know, the third world and the second world trying to develop, it seems like a really unique moment in the 20th century. Um, what, what, do you, what do you make of, well, can you comment more on that, that effort um, in, in trying to, because it seems like something that, A, is sorely needed today, um, uh, and, and I wonder also what we could learn from that as well. Yeah, so you, you're exactly right. The, when I was talking about UNCTAD, UNCTAD was uh, the economic side uh, bringing together at the beginning 77 countries. Um, and it also brought together the United States was also a member of the UNCTAD too. Um, but they were the economic side. The political side was the G77. And um, they had an incredible power because originally they were, uh, these countries, at least India and Indonesia, were on the Security Council. And this gave them an incredible power to do, to make a lot of change worldwide. And so um, when I was talking about just the, the Yugoslavs, um, Egypt, and um, India, that was just one specific small case of what they were trying to do, work together very closely, even though they were very far away. But it, the non-aligned movement um, was, uh, I mean, it was a very difficult thing. It was not, it was very complicated people. There were a lot of political difficulties with doing things, but it was, um, there was a sense of clarity about what they were trying to do, which was trying to create a global economy that was not moving through the European colonial powers and moving through the United States. Severing that connection and trying to reestablish other kinds of connections. If we think about the colonies were not supposed to have relationships with each other. They were supposed to have relationships with their colonial power. And so this meant that they were trading, they, they were privileging the colonial powers and not actually helping each other out and not creating an economic world that they could be part of and be equals with others. And so this was, um, a truly global economy. And so when we talk, and the Yugoslavs were so important because they had thought about these things in a very um, in-depth way. They had large institutes working on these problems of how to have a global economy. And one of the things that was so important to the Yugoslavs, um, and it was actually to how to have money to do this. And they had banking, they made up banking uh, or uh, new banks to fund these uh, kinds of developments uh, to create a global economy. And so this was uh, something that we can learn from today because it really is an attempt by the third world to work with each other. And that's really what we what would be great today too. I mean, the online movement continues today, but in a very different form. The emergence of the non-alignment movement and the efforts to, you know, create this socialist globalization that you talk about comes in two really important historical con 
you know, events that are happening in the mid 20th century. The first is, of course, the death of Stalin. So you have a de-Stalinization, you know, in in the Eastern Bloc uh, more generally, and you have decolonization. So both both kind of in the binary world of the Cold War, both sides are are shaken by by a kind of crisis of of crisis of empire. So how does that context feed in the efforts of whether it's Eastern European countries or even in Africa or Asia and, of course, Yugoslavia to try to carve out a third way? Yeah, so the, it's, um, yeah, I mean, the Yugoslavs definitely saw themselves as as the same in some sense as the non, other countries in the non-aligned movement. They saw themselves as a developing country, that they had experienced similar problems that developing countries have. And that they they shared those problems and that they saw themselves as working on a common project. So that's that's very important. And I I have always thought the non-aligned movement was both anti-U.S. and anti-Soviet. Though I've begun to question whether it's totally as, as strongly anti-Soviet as I thought it was. I'm not. It's it's sort of unclear because the Soviets are changing often, right? So, um, but I I have seen it. I have understood it as being anti-Soviet, but. Um, what's interesting is is this um, turn to new kinds of socialism with the new economic mechanism, um, and there has been um, some rethinking about the actual experience of the collective goods that are provided by the state socialist uh, world. <laughs> and um, there's a book coming out called The Socialist Good Life. Juja Gile is one of the people that's working in it, uh, This one of the co-editors. Uh, co and they're exploring actually trying to talk about the good life in socialist countries and trying to re-approach re the problem um, rather than seeing it as individual consumer goods measuring that or whether the the buildings are too gray, right? Like to actually look at other ways to evaluate socialism um, in a more, um, in a more maybe systematic way. Yeah, so it should be good. Yes. Amid all of this that you're talking about the non-aligned movement and the third world and the second world, you're also having the new left, you know, in, in Europe, you know, France 68, the anti-war movement, civil rights movement, uh, the new left United States, do they play, what, do you know of what role they play in, in the discussions going on? So it's interesting because the, the new left plays a very complicated role, right? Because in some sense, so I've, I spoke with some economists uh, in Croatia and they talked about how they brought new left ideas which was bringing a different kind of economics to the question, which was a Marxist, more Marxist-infused uh, political economy to the discussions where in Yugoslavia they were more just they were sort of focused around neoclassical economics, which is really in some sense quite different from that Marxist discussion, especially by the time we get to the new left. So um, in fact, this brings a new life to these discussions, but it, it takes it actually in some different directions than were, they were before. But I think you're totally right about that there is a, that these economists are not people that are separated from social movements, that in fact, many of them are taking part, either some of the people that I study were partisans, you know, they were fighting, they were fighting and they took that feeling into their economics. So I think you're right that the social movements are, are important 
shapers of economic knowledge. And in relationship to this and these discussions about, you know, attempts to create a socialist globalization, another term that we tend to, you know, think of in terms of neoliberalism comes up, and that is structural adjustment. Mm -hmm. and, and I was really struck in reading one of your articles that this word was being used by these socialist globalizers. Um, so what, what is structural adjustment and, and how did they use it? Yeah, so this is, I mean, primarily in my mode of doing things is I go and read stuff and I'm like, oh my God, what are they talking about? You know, like, it's like, I thought we were going to talk about, the, you know, this was going to be about one thing and I find out it's totally about another thing. So I'm always very surprised whenever I come across different documents in the archives. And so I try to make sense of them. And so um, I, so in the, in the UNCTAD archives, they were talking about all the countries of the world have to structurally adjust. And I'm like, well, this sounds just like the World Bank and the IMF advocating for structural adjustment, which structural adjustment in its common understanding is the idea that you would individual countries would structurally adjust. And that would be um, that would basically destroy their economy and in order to pay back their debt. And they would become completely dependent on the World Bank and the IMF and um, and have the end of uh, parts of their economy would be destroyed and privatized and they would become part of a kind of dependent global factory. And so when I looked back at this, I realized that the idea of structural transformation had originally, and structural change, structural adjustment, these terms were used interchangeably, had originally come out of two places. The first place it came out of um, was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was trying to change its economy with the, with, through a revolution to change it from an agricultural economy to industrial economy. This was understood as a structural change, the changing of the structures of its economy, creating a fundamentally new economy. The other place that this also came out of was Germany. Um, and there were um, a bunch of economists in Kiel at a, uh, at a research center there. This uh, place in Kiel was dealing with um, the, uh, the end of World War One. At the end of World War One, Germany lost all its colonies and lost other land, and therefore had to structurally adjust its economy to deal with the fact that it had lost major uh, sources of raw materials, and it also lost other things, uh, factories and other parts of. Uh, I think because they took. I'm, I'm not certain what all the Germany lost, but they had to structurally reorganize their economy. And so that became also a global question because the, the Germans had to then also think about the relationship to the world differently. Both of these uh, in Kiel were not only people dealing with the German uh, structural adjustment, but they were also uh, Soviet economists were coming over and um, joining the Kiel Institute. Um, Vasily Leontiev, a famous Russian uh, Soviet economist uh, who later went on to work at Harvard University, um, he was there and many other people were there. And so they de developed their ideas about structural change, structural transformation, and structural adjustment there. These notions of structural adjustment then change because people begin to develop the idea that not only does one country do this by themselves, but in fact it must happen on a global scale that all countries have to structurally adjust because they have to change with each other in order to have an, a, a kind of a mutually beneficial trade and mutually beneficial production. 
So this was supposed to be a global structural adjustment. This idea moves through the non-aligned movement and it is advocated by different groups. You see them talking about structural adjustment and, and wanting structural adjustment and they specifically want the US to structurally adjust. And, um, and so they come into 1980 demanding structural adjustment and they get it technically from the World Bank and the IMF offers structural adjustment loans starting in 1980. These structural adjustment loans are funds to do these things that the third world wanted to do. However, the World Bank and the IMF then changed the game and they began to say, no, we're not gonna structurally adjust the world. In fact, you have to structurally adjust and you have to adjust in the way we think will be efficient and good for you. So that this structural adjustment becomes a different structural adjustment that in fact supports neoliberalism. Hi, my name is Yaroslav Kovalchuk and I'm a PhD student in history at the University of Alberta, Canada. I listen to the SRB podcast because that's one of the best ways to be in touch with the Soviet historiography. Plus, Sean Guillory has a great taste in music. Now, the, when we think of this, this moment in the 80s of structural adjustment, the IMF and the World Bank, and, and into the, you know, the collapse of the socialist system in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, we associate this history of neoliberalism with the Washington Consensus, right? There's tons of books written about this from, you know, David Harvey to, uh, you know, Marx, other Marxists, etc. However, um, in your work, you actually emphasize the agency, and I think this is really interesting, of Eastern Europe, of Chile, and the global South in, in general, in the development of neoliberalism. Uh, where they're just not kind of passive recipients of these ideas. Um, so how, do, how does neoliberalism's emergence look like or, or how, what agency do they have when you look at it from the periphery of the second world and the third world? So the, the thing I've, uh, so I began looking at the case of uh, Yugoslavs doing advising in Chile and Peru. They begin advising in the 1950s and 1960s and continue till the 1970s. Um, and uh, they, and the important thing about the advising that they're doing is that they're advising based on the Yugoslav model of worker self-management. And in Peru, they actually implement a worker self-management model um, with uh, in uh, 1968 to 75, they have this Yugoslav style model that, and they have lots of Yugoslav advisors in the area. Um, and, but this, this relationship between these countries is in fact not the beginning of this discussion. This discussion had been going on for some time because socialists and communists around the world were incredibly interested in the kind of socialism that Yugoslavia had. And Yugoslavia was just merely um, realizing the socialism of worker self-management that many people around the world have been demanding for many uh, in the 19th century and through the 20th century. Um, the kind of socialism that developed in the Soviet Union, um, these people were very critical of. They did not see that the workers had much power or influence or freedom in some sense. And so the Yugoslav model was incredibly important. So this relationship with Latin America is part of a global discussion about worker self-management socialism. As a, but I want to say that 
it becomes neoliberal only in the fact that it is misunderstood because it speaks about positively about markets, positively about prices, and positively about other things that sound like free trade. Sounds like neoliberalism, they're misinterpreted as neoliberalism, but in fact, they were talking about socialism. So what what happens then? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what happens in, in these places where they're influenced by and even try to implement Yugoslav-inspired forms of socialist economics? How does it then, like Chile is a good example yeah. of this, right? You know, until uh, a, a six months ago or so, Chile was held up as the archetypal, you know, neoliberal experiment. So how does it go? For, and also in Eastern Europe as well. Yeah, so there's several things that undermine this whole project. The first thing is the 1980s debt crisis. The debt crisis means that the these socialist countries are without any capital to fund this kind of uh, changes that they want to implement. So it becomes incredibly difficult um, worldwide. Um, and then also in uh, so this that's that was the end of the Peruvian uh, case. But the proves the Peruvians also continue certain forms of worker self-management after into the 1980s. Um, in in the case of Chile, of course, the coup, um, the Pinochet coup, coup ends a lot of things. But things, the discussions about worker self-management continue in Chile. Chile, um, there is some hope coming into 1988, 89 that there might be some kind of new attempt at socialism. But in fact, what happens is, is that there is a turn of uh, certain elites decide to make a deal and say, no, we're not going to talk about socialism. We're going to talk about democracy. We're going to talk about not workers' democracy. We're going to talk about representative democracy. And this, this turn towards representative democracy undermines the whole process in Chile that could have been much more open, at least according to some people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, in, in reading some of your recent things, it, it's clear that, or even before, it's clear that discussions and thinking about and experimenting with market socialism was quite robust in the Cold War period, right? This effort to, you know, move away from the Soviet model or even the Chinese model to something else, whether it's inspired by Yugoslavia or other places in the world. So w what happened to it? Because then it, it seems to go completely dormant or goes away um, and, and now only now I think there's, and even now there isn't a lot of serious thinking of market socialism, but people are starting to at least talk a little bit about it now. So what happened to it? So uh, my work ends basically in 1991. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I like to say that other people can take up that project of knowing exactly right. that sort of, those sort of issues. But I mean, a lot of, uh, the market socialism discussion, I mean, part of my work is what I'm trying to talk about is, is that we often talk about these countries as being isolated or autarkic and they weren't talking to anybody. But there were huge discussions. People were moving all over, first of all, the uh, the Soviet bloc. People were moving all around talking about economic ideas with their colleague Polish Polish uh, a group of economists would come to Hungary, Hungarians would come go to different places. Um, and so there were people moving around talking about sharing uh, what they knew. Um, but also like the Americans would often sell their conferences saying, there'll be Soviet economists here. 
That was how they sold the con to conferences. That so it was very popular to hear the what people were doing. You know, no, it was unclear what was going on. People would come in and talk and give you what was going on in the reforms, and then people were talking about reforms in other places. And so this was a really huge discussion. And I mean, my theory is is that um, many people willfully misunderstood this as as actually talking about capitalism, and that people just wanted capitalism even though they never used that term until much very late in the game. So do you think that it's, it, it's... I want to have you complicate the, the, the issue of market socialism and how it was experienced and implemented because, you know, people might hear this and some of it has to do with the binaries that we play with, but it also has to do with the actual experience of these attempts in, in Eastern Europe, like in Hungary and, and elsewhere. Um, so what what would you say to somebody who who would point out well look at the inefficiencies look at the failures of this system how would you square that with the economic thinking of the time Yeah so it at the it's important to realize that the economists were having a discussion behind the scenes uh, and were pulling their hair out like they were just like oh come on like political leaders wouldn't implement the policies that they wanted they were all the time trying to force a change and then the a communist party would come back and revert everything and just turn it back to the way it was before or give power to some centralizing power and they'd be like oh we have to start again so the at least the hungarian economists saw reforms as this kind of wave it would go forward and then go back and then go forward again and go back and so they were constantly disappointed <laughs> but they had a model that they believed would work and this model whether it would work in reality or not. It, the idea of market socialism was a jump to a full market. That was supposed to happen. You were supposed to have this full market and you were supposed to have socialism, socialism simultaneously. And this was supposed to work and it comes from, I mean, Oscar Longa had a model for this and other people made some you know, different kinds of models. Um, and so the, this, this, um, the fact that it was only partial, which was just, drove the economists crazy and were very upset by it. They were hoping coming into 89, they may actually realize a real market socialism. The same can be true of the Yugoslav system also, worker self-management also was, uh, was criticized all the time. And um, people wanted to really realize worker self-management, particularly at the highest levels of the communist party, they wanted to have it everywhere. And this was not allowed to happen either. So there was a hope for fully realized socialism was a hope. So would you say then that, that the, the real issue here then is the it's a political problem? It's how power or political power is distributed in these systems. And it's but it's also not just the political I mean, it is political power. And it also is the fact that people disagree on what socialism should be, right? right. The economists may have one idea <laughs> and a bunch of other experts might have another set of ideas and they might actually equally be right in some way. So do you think that it's it it's I mean this I think, I guess what, and I don't know if I can formulate a question here, so maybe you'll just have to comment, but it seems everything you've been talking about is a constant misunderstanding of what the conversation is about. So is that misunderstanding based in, say, a power relationship in the sense that, say, the United States that's hosting these conferences, and we all know how the United States likes to hear itself echoed in others, uh, is it, is that the source of the misunderstanding, or was it just well, we're going to bring these people from these small little states and 
we don't really regard them as having any real input or something like that. I don't know. I think it's a huge power dynamic. So if, um, um, there's a person who writes about Poland, uh, Janine Waddell. Janine Waddell really documents that power dynamic um, between the American advisors and the Polish advisors. It's incredibly um, rude <laughs> and like very um, condescending. Um, and so um, people don't really um, reveal what they really want. There's a there's a, a sort of disregard of people's opinions and things like this that occur during the negotiations. And so that's part of the problem. Another part of the problem is you. I mean, if you think about the early 1990s, there was this feeling of hegemony, like coming down. You felt it. You're like, you're like. I think a lot of people just were like, I can't think of socialism. Like it was like this. Like you can't think about it. Like it's like it was. It was either maybe embarrassing. It was seen as outdated. Um, and so you would try to push through and go, what, what, wait, 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 there's, this is still on the table, isn't it? No, it's not on the table. So it's, I think it's about hegemony in some sense. And that those processes of hegemony are very difficult to document, right. but people feel them and, and that things become, socialism at that time becomes backward, becomes right. outmoded. It has these certain phrases that are used that are very colonial phrases. Mm -hmm. Do you so? And there's been a lot of thinking recently, and and even kind of popular articles now reevaluating 1989, yeah. right? And now because you know the rise of the right in Eastern Europe, and say the illiberalism of po in Poland and in Hungary, you know people are like, what happened? 1989 was supposed to solve all of this democracy stuff. So do you think that? It, and now, of course, this is in retrospect, but do you think that 1989 was misinterpreted then? Like what the aspirations of 1989 uh, were were seen as this desire for uh, liberal capitalism, liberal democracy and capitalism, um, and were just, like I said, just misinterpreted that desire? I mean, if you look at so many people's work, there's so many different interpretations of what 1989 was supposed to be. James Crapfel's work, which is a beautiful book, um, his book about... Uh, Czechoslovakia in 1989. I mean, that was supposed to be a revolution for socialist humanity and fairness. And it's like an amazing book that is a fundamentally different desire than a desire for market socialism, which is different from a desire for some people also wanted to have Swedish welfare state, right? Like other people wanted, you know, these other things. And so um, the, the explosion of possibilities um, was there, and then there were people that willfully put it in a box and said, the, the people that were far away could say, like, they want capitalism. Right. <laughs> I want to talk about your other project a bit, um, which is basically your own neighborhood, yeah. right? You live in Ward 6 in Washington, D.C., and you're looking at gentrification there, which is a big topic. I live in a gentrifying neighborhood myself, and I admit I'm contributing to that. Um, <laughs> just by having a house there. Uh, so tell us about this project. Yeah, so I was uh, spending my life thinking about Belgrade in 1970s. And so I decided that I needed to pay attention to the current day in my neighborhood. And so I um, I started listening to what my neighbors were saying. And I'm like, oh, wow, we need to think about what's, go think what's going on here. And um, first of all, I th immediately thought that sociology would be helpful. So I have this blog called Sociology in My Neighborhood. But what's become very uh, important to me is about how, so I live on Capitol Hill, 
And I'm writing about one block on Capitol Hill that is a place of uh, a racial line has been on that, moving up and down that block um, over a hundred year period. And there have been three major displacements on the block. Um, and so I've been trying to explain what's going on in that block. And within the context of urban sociology and, uh, and uh, US urban studies, However, but what's become clear to me is, is that moving through this block has been multiple globalizations. That this glo one globalization is the globalization of the Washington Consensus. That the Washington Consensus moved through this block and did certain and acted in certain ways. And um, some of the most important neoliberal policies were developed on this block. Um, so this Hope Six, uh, if you know anything about housing policy, neoliberal Hope Six has occurred there. But also on this block was a block of 100 years of Pan-Africanism connected to Du Bois and other people like that. And so this clashing of a socialist globalization and a capitalist globalization can be seen on this block. And that we see across the landscape in Washington, D.C., the movement and the clashing of, of these two globalizations or multiple globalizations moving through the space of Washington, D.C., so I recently looked, did some anal uh, analysis of different monuments to socialism um, throughout Washington, D.C., and talked about how they were placed in the space and sort of how they interacted with capitalism and specifically gentrifi gentrification as a mm. form Can of Can you capitalism. give an example of one of these monuments? Um, so, uh, for example, there is... Um, uh, Oh my gosh, the communist uh, Paul Robeson. Oh, Paul yes, Robeson, yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, there are there are two monuments to Paul Robeson on, in Washington D.C. One is a very large mural, and another one is a kind of African statue. Um, and so these are placed in specifically placed in uh, gentrifying areas. Uh, the U Street area of Washington D.C. is super. Uh, gentrification is going on there, or hyper gentrification. So you can see this; um, these uh, socialist monuments, monuments to socialism, as an attempt to claim space, claim space for another kind of globalization, or and claiming space for another way of being in the city. Can you feel this politically? The clash. Yes. Yeah. Can you? Are you involved in that, or can you talk a bit about that? So yes. Yeah, so. Um, so my purpose, I think, with my work is to think about how um, to really talk about past alternatives. That's that's my main in interest, and my maybe I see it as my purpose is to bring up these different alternatives, many different kinds of alternatives from the past. Um, my purpose is not to evaluate these alternatives. So I, I don't, I can't really say to anyone, I'm not, I don't really have a way to evaluate whether market socialism worked in how we would evaluate that is not what I'm doing. So I'm just saying, it's just show um, the ideas behind it and various aspects about it and how it functioned. Um, and so in the case of Washington DC, I'm trying to talk about this past in order to help with the current day discussions, that people often are talking about things as if gentrification just arrived recently, but in fact, it is a very old process that is going on. And I, we're trying to also, people are trying to talk about um, 
Washington, D.C. has a very, very strong socialist past that is tied to our um, city as a black power city. And so to revive that, um, that socialist history is, I think, very important for people today working in um, political topics. Now, and, and finally, I mean, this leads right into my last question, and that is to kind of broaden this out, because, you know, these attempts that you're doing and making us rethink and revising how we understand things like, you know, socialism or neoliberalism or globalization, um, this isn't just an academic pursuit. You know, there is there you're making a political statement, right? And, and clearly, from what you just said, you're, you're very aware of that. So in the larger sense, in the larger, especially the discussions that we're having right now about, you know, the political future or, you know, is there a socialism that is viable that we can think about? Um, what political lessons do you want us to learn from your work? Yeah, so <laughs> I think I think that, I mean, many people follow this, but I think it's been always important to me is that these many times that the binaries that we see in the world, we should always think that there's more than the binaries should be immediately questioned. Um, that binaries often lock us into the they are the binaries of people in power, and that they are not interested in actually what people are doing or what people want necessarily the varieties of things that people want. So I'm uh, I'm interested in sort of uh, introducing a series of I guess steps about thinking about um, uh, the history as a way to have new alternative, you know, alternatives that are, have more alternatives on the table. Um, alternatives that were really, um, in many sense, things that people wished for. And, and also to help people understand in the United States about that people around the world um, have very different discussions than what we have in the United States. The discussions we have in the United States are often focused on binaries that are not helpful for understanding the rest of the world. And so I think that I'm, ho I'm hoping that it's um, a way to help to help Americans also understand the world better. That was Johanna Bachman, an associate professor in cultural studies at George Mason University, where she researches comparative and historical methods that move beyond studies of nation states to explorations of transnational trends, such as neoliberalisms, socialisms, and the non-aligned movement. She's the author of Markets in the Name of Socialism, The Left-Wing Origins of Neoliberalism, published by Stanford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. <laughs>